Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Unconventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Thank you for downloading another episode from the Unconventional Soldier podcast, which aims to record the history of the British Army's STA patrol unit through the voices of veterans who served in its ranks. Today we're talking to Neil Hogg, known as JD, and we'll be talking about Op Banner, the British Army's longest operation in Northern Ireland, which ran from 1969 to 2007. In this episode, we'll cover a short history of the Troubles, pre-deployment training, what it was like to be on a tour in the late 80s. JD will also discuss a contact in Londonderry in which he was involved and two members of the Special OP Troop, Steve Cummins and Mars Amos, were killed and JD's subsequent battle with PTSD. Finally, we'll finish off with Desert Island Dits, his choice of book, film and luxury item. So, going halfway across the world, as JD now lives in Australia. So as usual, we'll start off with our guest backstory and how they ended up serving in the Special Observers. JD, good good morning or good afternoon. I don't know what the timeline is over there. Um, yeah, good evening, mate. Good evening. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me your story. What what got you to the Special OPs? Uh, I joined the uh, Junior Leaders Regiment in um, 1984. Um, at the age of 16 and uh, completed my training with uh, Dixon Troop uh, Baker Battery. Um, towards the end of the training, we got offered positions where to where to go, what regiments to go to, and I applied for 3-2 Guided Weapons Regiment, uh, which was in Bulford at the time, I think. Uh, at the end of my training, I was posted to 3-2 Heavy Regiment, who was stationed in Dortmund, um, West Germany. Um, so I got posted to 7-4, the Battle Axe Company as a gun number. Um, I always remember arriving, seeing guys stood on the or sat on the steps of the building drinking beer, 
at lunchtime, <laughs> and they were all half cut. And I thought, what have I come to? This place is uh, this place is <laughs> terrible. Um, so anyway, I ended up working on the guns, and I hated it. I, I couldn't stand it. So what what was it you didn't like about it, JD? Um, well. You know, I'd, I'd applied to go to a guarded weapons regiment. So I actually thought that might be a bit, bit cushy, cushy number, I suppose. But um, and then I ended up on an M one hundred and seven in Hona in in the middle of winter. So you can imagine minus thirty five or whatever it was, sat on the front of a gun um, at sixty k's an hour, sixty miles an hour, with a wind chill factor of like minus thirty five, minus forty. You know, um, yeah, I, I just hated it. I, I just thought this is just an existence. I need to do something else. So for for the listeners that may not know, an M107 was not enclosed. It was completely open, and the cr- the crew travelled on top of the gun. Uh, so it was absolutely freezing. And I remember the guys on the gun saying to me, oh, I couldn't do a job on the OPs, but I used, well, we all used to look at them and go, I couldn't do that job. It was way too hard. Yeah, it was a, it was a tough job. So how long were you in 7-4 battery? Uh, I think I was in for about eight months, and... Um, I used to see uh, a couple of guys who used to be in the 7.4 battery knocking around the cookhouse and that sort of thing. And I asked a few questions within the battery uh, about the special OP troop. And it was sort of that that sort of led me across to investigating it a bit further. So, how old is you when you applied then? You couldn't because you were only there for a short time, wasn't you? In 7-4? 19. Yeah, 19. 19. Oh, got you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I think I was the youngest member at the time. Um, yeah. So, how did, you, how did you sort of start the process off? Well, I walked across to, I found out where they were because it's pretty hard to find out where they were at that stage. Um, and somebody said, oh, I'll go and see the uh, the parachute regiment colour sergeant there. Um, he's at HQ battery. So I made my way across, <laughs> a little bit nervous, knocked on the door, and um, Geordie Watson took one look at me and just laughed. <laughs> 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 he just said, come back. <laughs> no chance, come back when you're older. You're not old enough and just gave me a, a bit of, bit of a ticking off and told me to get on my way. But then Davey, the sergeant there said, Oh, you know, let's give, let's give the guy a go. You know, it might surprise you. So in that, in, in that sentence, then he said, right, I'll be here on such and such a day. <laughs> You're on the training course. And I thought, Oh my God, what have I done? You know what I mean? <laughs> so. so how did that go down in your battery? Well, I went back to this, uh, the, what was he? The W O two there. He was a big bloke. He's big square red on him. <laughs> I can't remember his name, but he was he was ferocious. This fellow, rugby player, and he said to me, um, "What do you mean you're going to the special OP troop selection?" I said, "Well, I've just been seeing the colour sergeant, and he said I can go on it." He said, "You've got no chance." He said, "Look at you. <laughs> you're, only, you're only 19. You're like <laughs> three stone wet through. You're never going to pass." I said, "Oh well, you know, I'd like to give it a go." And he said, "Well, if you come back here, you fail that course and come back here, I'm going to make your life a misery." Um, <laughs> so, bit of motivation. <laughs> did, did, did that did that ever sort of on those dark days when you were foundering, uh, floundering? Did you did that help you out a little bit? Yeah, I reckon so. I, ju- I didn't want to go back there, so you know, I had the I had the guns. I didn't want to go back to the guns, uh, and I certainly didn't want to go back to that sergeant major. God, <laughs> he was the driving force, I reckon, when we were on. Do you remember the Black Hills at the back of uh, Dortmund, where we used to do the carrying up, up and down the hills at the back? Yeah. When we were climbing them with someone on my back, I'd just go, oh, I, I ain't going back there, I'll just keep going. Yeah, so I think it did drive me on. I think most people have something like that that gets them through. Either, yeah. you know, somebody yeah. said they weren't good enough for it or, you know, there's no way they'd be able to pass. I think everybody finds that motivation somewhere. Yeah. I think what's interesting, though, is the common thread throughout so far. Uh, I think this will carry on to, even to today that um, 
people volunteering. There was always people in the gunners that actually were not very supportive and still probably not as supportive of this very specialist role. Even though it's been a success for the 30-odd years it's been in existence, they're still struggling to embrace it. Yeah, I like that. that's fair. Yeah. yeah. So we'll go on to meet the matter now and talk about Banner. And uh, all tours are personal. That sounds really stupid, but all tours are personal to those that have gone on them and, they, and they're, they're ingrained on you because you've walked the ground, you've seen your friends hurt or, in the worst case, you know, killed. Uh, and I remember as an Afghan a couple of years ago, I was working as a contractor and I bumped into some of the lads and we're talking about Afghanistan and sort of the hard time they were having out there, a lot of contacts going down. And I said, you do realise, and once this is all over, give it three or four years, nobody will give a toss about Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And it's true. You look at it now, five years yeah. ago, nobody cares about it. And that's very much the same as uh, Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. We are all got buy-in into it, and it's very personal to us because we were there. And I think it was often forgotten about is what a violent and long campaign it was. Yeah. Started in 1969, went through to 2007, making it the first, sorry, the longest ever British Army operation. Interestingly, the first and last casualties were gunners. Mm. Gunner Robert Curtis in February 1971 and Lance Bomb Stephen Restrict in February 97. There were a total of 3,568 casualties, of which civilians were 1,879, security forces 1,117, and the bloodiest year was 72 when 149 were killed. Provisional IRA, 399. Loyalist terrorists, 162. And Irish security forces, 11. Another thing we tend to forget is what a determined and innovative enemy the IRA were, and they were not to be underestimated. Uh, the campaign was not just in Northern Ireland. You know, everybody knows about the UK mainland attacks, but they also did a lot of attacks in the British Army of the Rhine in Germany itself. And if you remember uh, back in Dortmund, Major Dylan Lee, I think yeah, it was BCHQ, yeah. Barry, wasn't he? Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. He was uh, followed home from a mess function and shot dead on his doorstep. And the guys on main gate heard the rounds being fired. And then uh, the the car that was the IRA guys were escaping and drove past the main gate taunting them. Hmm. And then also you had Heidi Allen, who is uh, the German wife of a soldier, was shot hmm. dead in her car. Yep. And you were always on the alert. You're always searching your car when you came back, uh, when it was parked up outside. It, it was uh, a full-on in your mind all the time. And we're just going to highlight the effectiveness of the IRA on the ground in Northern Ireland as well. And the first one was the worst ever day for the British Army in Northern Ireland. That was uh, Warren Point, 1977, when 18 soldiers from the Parachute Regiment and the Queen's Own Islanders were killed. And this is a really ex- an example of a complicated, well-set-up ambush where the first roadside bomb killed six who were travelling past in Bedford trucks. The IRA had watched our tactics and then decided that they knew where the ICP, the incident control point, was going to be set up. And they set up a secondary device there. And the helicopter carrying the CO and a signaller from the Queen's Own Highlanders came down to control the incident. And that bomb went off and killed him, the signaller, and a, and, uh, a further 12. Uh, so it was a deadliest attack of the, the Troubles, as I said. And on the same day, they also killed Lord Mountbatten and a couple of other people in his boat at Mulligmoor. So a very successful day for the IRA. And they're also quite prepared to step up and dismount and take an attack forward as a, as a Derry Yard. Hmm. Yeah, I think uh, we talked about this the other day, about the Derry Yard one, where, you know, it's, it's, it was the, a 45 position. And yet in 1989, the IRA attacked a PVCP manned by, manned by the King's Own Scottish Borderers in County Fermanagh. 
the IRA unit fire manoeuvre towards it, firing from the back of an armoured dump truck, attacked a small base, heavy machine guns, grenades, anti-attack rockets, and a flamethrower. That must have been absolutely fearsome and frightening at the same time. A nearby army patrol arrived on the scene. Uh, firefight erupted. The IRA withdrew after leaving a van bomb outside the complex. Fortunately, it didn't fully detonate. But the assault on the outpost left two soldiers dead and two wounded. So if they felt they could win in a stand-up fight, they would. And it was I think that was always forgotten about by people back in the UK who thought maybe it was always bombs, car bombs, and, and, and what they've seen on the TV, not the actual sometimes a proper fight. Yeah. And uh, shortly after that, they introduced underslung grenade launchers and yeah. 50 cows and some of the singers in the more exposed positions, didn't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, to, to counter that threat. Well, we could, so, our, we could, could get our gun easy enough because the, they had the chance to plan. Yeah, and I think in that attack, as you said, the, the, that team in there, the military patrol in there, were comprehensively outgunned. It yeah, was just their absolutely. aggressiveness that managed to win the, the beat them off. Yeah. So that was the background to Op Banner, and uh, it was to that background we deployed in December 88 when 3-2's Special OP Troop was attached to 18 Battery, and off we went to Londonderry. Londonderry itself is a very historical place, especially for the Troubles. It was a scene of Bloody Sunday, and it was the home of hardcore Republicans like Martin McGuinness, who was re- reputed to be one of the provisional gunmen on the day of Bloody Sunday. Some uh, people credit him with firing the opening shots. So a bit of the geography. Londonderry was split in two by the River Foyle, with Everton Barracks for the resident battalion to the south, and Fort George, where we were in the north. Everton Barracks was massive. I could take a full battalion. Fort George, I don't know, probably about an acre and a half, JD, do you reckon? Yeah. A tiny, little, tiny little block of land. Surrounded, <laughs> little, <by them. laughs> surrounded, yeah, it was like Fort Apache because you're back to the river and you're surrounded by, by uh, hardcore Republicans on, on each side. So also on the northern side, though, they had several other smaller bases at strategic points throughout the city, <coughs> as well as three permanent vehicle checkpoints on main road arteries crossing the border or feeding into the city itself. Mm-hmm. So the training we received prior to deployment lasted about four months and was both comprehensive and thorough. And in my eyes, out of all the tours I did, it's probably amongst the best training yeah. I ever had. Yeah. And when I turned up in Londonderry, I felt well prepared. Uh, Kev wasn't on this tour, but he did a tour with another regiment the year before. So Kev basically did the same stuff we did just the year beforehand. So Kev, can you just cover off the sort of the training that you went through at the time? The CO decided he wanted to do the full package, and the full package was we did the full urban package because we were just going to an urban environment. We did the full rural because originally we were we were deploying to Armagh City, so we'd cover South Armagh as well, uh, and we did the full um, internal security, like uh, public disorder training or public order as it used to be called. Well, this is really public disorder. So we had a, we had about four and a half months of training, five months of training for a four and a half month tour because that's all we were planning to do and um i mean we could have everything we spent a month down in uh Lyden hyde in tin city uh continually doing all that sort of training all the different weapon systems that were be given some of the specialist equipment as well and i don't know what it was planned because my tour then became part of two halves we started off in armar where we were attached as one of the companies with the udr regiment and then we redeployed to londonderry halfway through to reinforce the residential battalion. So each troop became a platoon and we got attached to their um, company groups 
And then we rotated, and probably very similar to yourself, we did City, PVCPs, and then Rural uh, on a weekly basis. Uh, and, we, and we've just kept rotating that Fort George on that piece, whereas the battalion did one month from the city, then went back to Edmonton Barracks, so they rotated as a company, and we just carried on supporting each company group as they come through. And because we were we were the first group to move up there, especially from the Gunners, we were cutting a bit of track because they didn't know how to what to use this extra body with. Yeah, so it's um it was a bit confusing at times. I think I think it's two and two good points to bring out there. The first thing was how realistic the training was. And if you remember oh. JD, when the lads in the troop lost an eye during the riot training when yeah. we were doing it, yeah. some somebody picked up a track pad, which is must have weighed about two or three kilograms mm. when we're doing the right training and threw it at the baseline and it struck this guy on the uh, eye and blinded him. Yeah, that was the bolt on the bottom of it, wasn't it? It hit him straight yeah. in the eye. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so it was a bolt that did it? Yeah, it was yeah. a bolt on the bottom of the track pad bounced up and hit him straight in the eye. Yeah. Oh, we, so. we, had a, we had a bloke that didn't deploy because when we did the right training, um, we used the bombs. His boots, obviously... Because we were from a gun battery or gun regiment, his boots had been impregnated with oil over the years. Boots went on fire. That's cut them off, and both his, you know, he just could not deploy after that. His, his feet were in shocking state, and, and then straight away, we all had new boots issued because we couldn't have boots that were being bald or yeah. uh, being used mm-hmm. in gun parks where they got a bit of oil on. Because we, yeah. you know, it was again, no one foresaw that. But the no. training was fearsome. The right training was absolutely fearsome. So, JD, can you give the listener a feel for what the tour was like once you arrived there and you'd done all this training and just give people a feel for the, the ground at the time? Yeah, I, was, uh, I always remember landing in the, I think it was the middle of winter we arrived um, in December and we arrived at Fort George. I think we were getting a briefing on the night and um, our welcome briefing and um, the RA decided to have a blast at the gates <laughs> just to welcome us and uh, took the front gate off, I think they did, but um we were just like, well, we're here now. This is the way it's going to be, and it, and it, and it was unfortunately. It, we, I think, we had um, numerous contacts, gunfire, as well as IEDs. But uh, our duties were mixed, really, with, between foot patrols in the city or the housing estates, such as the Craigan and the Bogside, which weren't the nicest places to be. <clears throat> um, Come, coming from Manchester, though, mate, you must have felt right at home. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I did actually on a, fr- on a Friday night <laughs> in the city. <laughs> um, uh, the Craigan and the Bog side probably reminded me of Moss side in a, in a way. But yeah, um, so we, we, we did like foot patrols around there. We did foot patrols uh, rural, um, which is really back to basics where we, where we come from, really. Most of our work back in Germany is rural anyway. And then we did a couple of jobs with um, surveillance jobs on the border where we had sensors in place and that sort of stuff um sitting in a rhododendron bush for a week in in december isn't, <laughs> <laughs> isn't very nice in, in londonderry so we did a few things like that and then obviously you've got your um your station security if you like you know for the for the base on the on the watchtowers and what have you so when when you actually got out of that routine and then went to the pvcps it was quite um I found it quite quite relaxing, really, because as, as a team, you sort of disappeared and you just ran your own admin and that sort of stuff. And I think we had a military police attached to us for some of it while we were on the border or checkpoints. So. Yeah. yeah, I used to like doing the military escorts for the RUC. Uh, so you used to go and you'd 
get an IUC in the, I think it was the hot spots they were called, Kev. Yeah. And we'd turn up in an APV, armoured personnel vehicle, snatch wagon, uh, and you'd have a guy from the Royal Corps of Transport to drive it because we weren't trusted because it was so heavy. <laughs> and you used to drive along the IUC, just, you know, helping them out additional patrols. But you always used to try and hopefully get over a lunch break or a tea time because you go to the IUC canteen. Mm. Yeah, because the food in there was really good. Well, the one at Strand Road was fantastic, wasn't it? So yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, another thing, just to point out, was you tended to work in. I think London there at the time it was two four man teams. Yeah, yeah. two teams. Yeah. yeah, two four man teams. Sometimes it was three four man teams, depending on the ground and where you were. But a lot of times, because London Dairy is quite small, it was two four man teams. So you were intimately involved with these guys. You know, uh, you were like, you know twenty four seven. You were these people, and you've got real close connections with them. Yeah, yeah. There's also river patrols. JD, did you do many of them? Yeah, yeah. We. Um... We ended up um, on a river patrol in uh, just after Christmas, I think it was, and some bloke, poor fella, had jumped off. He'd uh, decided to end it all, and we found him about three days later. So he wasn't in the in the best state after being in the river for three days. Um, but yeah, that's just one of the parts of the job, I suppose. And um, we didn't get to do that very often because I think people sort of jump for that job for some reason, sitting on a cold river with water chucking all over you in the middle of the night really isn't my kind of fun. Um, no, especially uh, when you had to go dismount at a riverbank. And I remember one of the guys in my team were getting dropped off to do a patrol and he was six foot three, Taff, you probably remember yeah. him. <laughs> and he, jump, he jumps out this uh, rigid radar <laughs> thinking he's going to be up to his knees. He went in over his head. <laughs> and he spent so we like, ah, bring it forward a bit to the, to the, the coxswain the coxswain brought it forward it's the middle of winter poor old tough mate was gibbering for the rest of that patrol <laughs> uh, good lad good lad Kev do you just want to cover a bit off with the PVCPs yeah um I mean we talked about it the other day about the, the joy of PVCPs when we first got there we we I think one of I did the sea patrol for a week. Then I moved on to PVCPs, and there was two teams. Like you said, we had a, an RMP support, and we had the RUC there as well. But I found it absolutely soul destroying for a week at a time. You know, from one sanger to another sanger to the search bay, and then get two hours potentially to make a cup of tea, and then back on it again, and then go, grab some food, get try and get a few hours kip base plate patrols, all that sort of stuff. It was just a, a week of, I don't know what it was. It was just, uh, it I'll talk just could. I mean, it I, was. I, 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 this is a genuine point. I couldn't visit zoos for years after that because I used to look at the animals caged up and it genuinely reminded me of being in a sanger in Northern Ireland. And I just thought the boredom, because those sangers back then, you couldn't see out of them because yep. you basically, it was metal slits. Do you remember? Yep. Yeah. You could only leave one a couple inches yeah, to, to, to look out. out. And yeah. you had to go around them all, opening them up, then closing them. Yeah. Two hours at a time in there, six hours during a, a shift, which is, as you say, Kev, it was a bloody torture. It was, because you did seven days of that, and then you change over thinking, thank God for that. And then I get back into the city, and I'd be put onto the guard in the Fort George. <laughs> <laughs> do eight hours on that. <laughs> trying, to get, trying to get quickly onto QRF or uh, standby QRF, just so I could sit in my kit in a chair and fall asleep. I, Watch I a video. Thought, well, 
it was just unbelievable. And then eventually you might get a bit of time to yourself to go. Because when we turned up Fort George, it wasn't set up in the same way it was for yourselves. Because when we turned up, we had to build some of it because there was no one there. There was very much um, uh, the infantry used it, but they didn't use it in the same way that we did. They didn't bring all their kit with them. They only come for the month in the city, and a lot of the time they could go back. It was absolutely filled. Well, there was no TVs. There was nothing. It wasn't set up for uh, an extra company, basically. Um, so the, the laundry room was just horrendous. You just couldn't get your kit washed. So basically, you just started to, to smell. It was horrible. But the PVC booth... Being, uh, there, there was there was holes in the bathroom wall. So if you're having a bath, there was bits of fiberglass dropping out of the wall into the bath. <laughs> <laughs> the place was just falling down, and then we got flooded because yeah. we had a big yeah. rainstorm. The, the river foil flooded, and next thing we were all up to our knees in water, walking to the cookhouse and that. You know, it, it was just, it was just it was like being I don't know I can't describe. It. People never believe it. The smell there was a smell about the place. The a Niebuhr vest smell, which you always got when you took it off, and it just constantly yeah. hummed inside those buildings because you could not vent. There was no ventilation, there's no windows. Yeah, actually, talking about those PVCPs, Kev, and with yeah. IRA tactics earlier, there's a good example here of how ruthless and determined the IRA were. Can you just yeah. outline that? Yeah, it was, a, it was a, an incident involved a guy called Patty Glepsy, who was chained to a car or to a vehicle. Um, and, and was forced to drive into uh, one of the VCPs. So Patrick Lepsey was a, a guy that lived in the Chantello area of, of Londonderry or Derry. And he worked at Fort George, um, which was one of the biggest, you know, at the base we just talked about, the salubrious um, uh, security force base. Um, he worked there as a cook and uh, he'd, been warned, he'd been warned before by the IRA to stop working at the base or face reprisals. It wasn't the first time he'd been threatened and on one occasion the ira forced him to drive a bomb into the base give him just enough time to escape uh, but fortunately the bomb failed to detonate and it's fairly full credit to him he didn't obviously stop working he, he was still he still carried on which i mean me i'd have moved house i'd, I'd be living in jd's country now <laughs> to me right yeah but in 1990 members of the ira uh, again took over gillespie's house and while his family was held at gunpoint, he was forced to drive his car to a rural spot on the other side of the Irish border. He was then put into a van loaded with a thousand pounds of explosive. He was chained to his seat to prevent his escape and told to drive to a permanent checkpoint on the Bulkrana Road. And the IRA followed him to make sure he would do as they told him. And um, just outside the uh, the checkpoint, when Glebsy reached it. He, he tried to get out and warn the soldiers, but the bomb was detonated, but obviously remotely by the, the IRA. I mean, it's a horrible tactic, and I think it, the, the other countries then adopted that proxy attack by using by forcing other people to do it. So uh, for, for a, a terrorist group, it's a successful method of doing it. For us, it was a, what, a terrible way to do something. Um, but it did, obviously, he was killed, and five soldiers were also killed during that attack. And it just happened because, again, fortifications at each of these bases were, were so good, it prevented a greater loss of life. But what you a horrendous got to on, mate. When, when that happened and I heard about it, because that was one of the PVCPs we used yeah. to ban, and yeah. it happened about a year later when we, we had left. Yeah. I wasn't surprised. I used to feel very exposed in those well, you, PVCPs. You, you, you always were. Yeah. I mean, as we talked about in the Derry Yard attack, it's so easy to be outgunned because you're trying to hold a, a fixed point and you've got limited 
systems. There's only ten, and, of, you, ten of you there, so yeah, yeah. And and you you know to get a QRF there would take what 15, 20 minutes, thirty minutes. You know, it's a long time to to hang around in a fight where you're getting out gun. And you know, Derry Art, he's a flamethrower. You know, I mean, it's horrendous. Um, yeah. So. JD, just a working class kid from Manchester. Yeah. What was the? How did you feel when you turned up in the Craigan and the Bogside? What? How? How were your encounters with the locals? Well, um, yeah, the locals in the, the Craigan and the Bogside would probably generally spit at you, or verbally abuse you, um, or throw rocks or petrol bombs or whatever. So I, I suppose there it was it was easier to sort of set yourself up to say, well, yeah, that's going to happen. I suppose it was more the the other estates, you know, where you might be in the city and there's a the, uh, the fountain or whatever, and you yeah. get um, someone from the Catholic side coming across and throwing bricks at you there because you didn't quite expect it. But uh, I, I I was brought up in Manchester at a time when you used to leave your doors open. You couldn't do that now in Manchester. Um, <laughs> And you know you could go out and nobody would break into your house. But yeah, but nobody uh, into Nick back then, JD. No, there wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even have cars. <laughs> um, so like there was uh, the Rossville flats in the in the town centre of uh, Londonderry. They used to throw fridges and all sorts off there. So you were mm. pretty on your on your guard there and that sort of thing. And that's where Bloody Sunday took place, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think at the time we were at Fort, uh, Fort George, we had about uh, twenty to thirty contacts with IEDs, uh, shootings, and drone uh, drone grenades or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think one of the one of the the most brutal ones that they used was the wire across to catch the uh, the guys on the on top the top cover. cover. Yeah, you know, and the pipe bombs that they used to use to take them out yeah. and that sort of stuff. Um, are those draw grenades are quite clever as well. Yeah. So for the listener, they look like a very large World War Two German grenade, but they had a, a shaped charge. And the idea behind them was they had a little parachute to act as a, a uh, you know, a stabilizer. And they would pop round the corner and just throw one of these underhand, hoping they would make contact with the side of the vehicle. And the shaped charge would blow a molten piece mm-hmm. of metal yep. through the uh, through the vehicle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's quite strange because I think it was only London Day where they were using that tactic because I don't think they were using it in Belfast. It was definitely something for that city because uh, when I turned yeah. up from Armagh, they didn't use that in Armagh, that tactic. But in, in when we started driving around our top cover and such like, um, they obviously give us massive torches and spotlights to try and look around because to deter. But it was definitely a tactic there that developed for that area. Yeah. 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 So- so, JD, you, you already alluded to what were the conditions like in in Fort George. You sort of touched on that, but can you just expand on it a little bit. Uh, well, I think they were pretty grim. <laughs> um, the, the rooms, um, obviously, there was three of us in our room. Uh, me, Stephen, Amo, and Jimmy Maxox, who's a sergeant. He's he's in the sergeant's mess. Um, so you had the easy, mate. We had four in our room. Yeah, yeah we had four. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think it was the same with our the other four member patrol uh, who worked with us. They were from the troop as well. Um, uh, and they had four in their room. So we only had three. Um, so Stevie got the best bed and me and Amo got the bunks. Um, <laughs> but like I said before, the bathroom facilities were awful. The fort was prone to flooding all the time because it was on the side of a river. It was pretty enclosed. You know, you had a big, big fence around the sides of it um, and watchtowers. So you, 
really you sort of look at it as if you're like a, just a little enclave in the middle of enemy territory really uh, and that's that's how it felt um and i suppose the best place the best place on the camp was the cookout because they used to feed you 24 hours but like like every night, chefs out there, they work their backside yeah, off yeah, and they were so good for morale. You you could turn up at three in the morning and there'd be you'd be eggs out laid out for you. But if you turned up maybe about four or five when they're starting to get breakfast on, they would do anything for you. Yeah, you know, yeah, they'd they make would. your bacon sarnie. The, 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 the chefs always take my hats off to army chefs. They take a lot of stick, but <laughs> but they were on, awesome. Awesome. They were awesome guys. Absolutely yeah. awesome. Yeah. I think the other thing as well, mate, is <laughs> you turned up and these tiny, tiny uh, port cabins that you're in and I remember the BQMS coming around saying who wants a telly and I'm thinking oh fantastic I'll go, go get a telly <laughs> no, you had to rent it you had to rent your own telly from Radio Rentals do you remember that? Yep, yep. Uh, and uh, you got one 20 minute phone call a week but if you're married you got 40 minutes because you know married men had more of a, a life than we did yeah. uh, I remember Taff, Taff used to ring his wife in Welsh because he said the Irish, <laughs> the, the Irish could never understand the Welsh <laughs> but that was the thing was you were told you had to be very careful what you yeah, said in the phone yeah, lines because exactly, yeah. I've been listened into. Yeah. There wasn't enough wash machines. And I remember sometimes you'd come off a rural patrol and all the wash machines would be full and you'd end up taking your kit into the shower and getting a broom out and washing your kit in the shower. There was a basic multi-gem, but nine times out of ten you were too tired to train because if you'd done eight hours camp guard, eight hours patrols, on your eight hours off, you're doing a bit of your own admin. You probably only had about four or five hours to get to sleep. And sometimes you'd be crashed out to do something else as well. And accommodation was always so noisy because your mm. patrol's going 24 seven. Mm. Yeah. So what's, what, what sort of kit did we have at the time? Sorry, mate, go on. They had the speakers in the room as well, didn't they? So yeah. 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 Con- got that. yeah. If, if yeah, there was yeah. a contact, you yeah. could be asleep, like you said, Fergie, on your, on your day off or, or your, your afternoon off or whatever. And next thing, contact, and you can hear the yeah. troops running down the street. And yeah, he was just constantly on, on edge, I think, at Fort George. So that, that's a really good point. You were on edge because the, the, what we didn't mention was the bases could be mortared. Yeah. And even though they had blast walls around them, there was no overhead protection. So if a mortar had landed, Amongst the accommodation, they were just port cabins. You, you wouldn't have oh, stood a chance. Yeah, we, we were all gone. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, equipment, JD. Do you want to cover off a little bit about equipment, mate? Yeah, uh, our equipment was pretty basic, really. Normal helmets with uh, visors and SLRs, baton gunner in each each patrol, and your ballistic vest. Not much to talk about on on the equipment, really, because it was just basic. Um, I suppose we did use some specialist equipment when we went. Uh, on OPs and that sort of stuff. But, uh, yeah, your, your equipment was pretty basic. I don't think we had Gore-Tex at that time in the services. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that picture you gave me the other day there to use to promote the podcast, uh, there's a patrol shot of your team, eight yeah. of you, and three guys are wearing barber jackets. <laughs> yeah, they are. Because yeah, it's the best we could get, you know. Is, yeah, we, the, the, the waterproofs that we got, if you wore them for too long, you ended up losing about three stone because <laughs> they, they just didn't breathe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kev, you're picking up a common theme here, aren't you? From well, other yeah. podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, I mean... Going back again, uh, when we started on our training, obviously the uh, somebody decided that during our tour, the whole regiment would be issued barber jackets. Well, obviously, when I say issued, we all had to buy them. Naturally, someone was making a deal. So they authorised everyone to wear barber jackets, even though they, someone said, well, wax, 
petrol bombs. Not sure. So they, they made a decision that uh, we were allowed to wear them on the rural side. So it cost me an absolute fortune. That's all. I mean, Northern Ireland did did have a, a development in specialist equipment. I mean, they did trial new stuff, and, and it, it didn't get to everybody. There was never going to be enough fit around. So mainly, it was just normal kit from other theatres of operation adjusted and made to work. I mean, I remember our SLRs, we didn't have underslung um, torches. So there was a Jubilee clip adjustment for a Maglite torch. But the guys from the Rulement Battalion, the, the, the infantry, who had SA-80s at the time, they were one of the first battalions to have it, had a different fit. So they had the common weapon sight, and I still had an iron, I don't know what I had, a, it was uh, IWS. Well, yeah. we started off an IWS, then we got the, the the small version, which was just still a massive three thing. Three foot long instead of four. Yeah, it, it, it just did not, you know, the rifle weighed about £15 without anything else. I think I can't even carry it. But it was interesting to see, as the tactics were developing from the IRA, because they they, they realised getting into a stand-up fight every day just wasn't going to be the answer, because obviously, militarily, we could outgun them eventually, and we would win on that. They changed their tactics. They would still have a go, but they used uh, more asymmetric warfare. And this is leading towards, obviously, the next phase of this, this conversation. Um, their devices, the IEDs and stuff they used in all the PVCPs and on bases were massive. They overmatched everything we had. We had no vehicles that could protect us in that theatre. I mean, eventually, we started to use move to more helicopter moves in the rural areas between bases rather than road moves because we just could not clear whole roads. And, you know, there was operations to clear roads, but, you know, you cleared it and then that was cleared for the time you run it. And then the next day, the road was unclear again. Well, there's some interesting stuff came out of the whole Northern Ireland piece. Mm. Britain became a leader in developing electronic countermeasures. Yes. And we all had to carry these wizardly boxes as well. Some weighed a lot more than others. Uh, and a lot of that, a lot of that came into play in Iraq later on, mm. as did a lot of the, the team level tactics. Yeah, I think so, so there was a lot of bleed off and across to places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, but I think that overmatching phrase you used there, Kev, is absolutely right because a lot of these terrorist campaigns they start off with the same thing. You know, you look back to the early days of the IRA campaign, yeah. and the early days of the campaign in yeah. Afghanistan and Iraq. They all start out trying to take the army on by shooting them. Yeah. Then you kill off all the stupid people because, you know, you're not going to be able to take on a professional army at a shooting game. And that's oh. when they move asymmetric to yeah. the IEDs yeah. and all the rest of it. Yeah. Okay, so moving on then, we've alluded to a number of attacks during our tour, JD, that the Pyra carried out without much success. However, on the evening, evening of 8th of March, you were involved in a contact in which two members of the troop were killed by an IED. Can you describe the events of that night for us? Yeah, um, funnily enough, I can remember it quite well. Um, <laughs> uh, I remember pre preparing for the job. Uh, we had the briefing at, at the fort. I remember Steve saying to um, the captain at the time that uh, he, he didn't feel as though we should go. He said he didn't feel right, and that's just the way he sort of said it. He didn't feel right. <clears throat> um, yeah, I suppose it's worth mentioning that Captain Sparks was killed a few a few years later in the Mullican Tower helicopter accident. Mm. Um, like forty of them, I think, wasn't it? Was that was a forty <laughs> on that Chinook? Twenty five killed from various 25, agencies yeah. and military, yeah. all, um, all on the NI sort of HQ. But uh, Stevie uh, was always one to 
um, talk his mind anyway. Um, and he sort of said, look, you know, I don't think we should go, boss. This, uh, uh, I just don't feel right about it. Um, so I remember leaving the briefing room. I was always the first to try and get in the truck and just get on the job and get it done. So I, I remember sitting on the left-hand side uh, behind the front passenger and um, I don't know why to this day, but something just made me move and I moved to sit behind the driver. Unfortunately for Amo, that's where Amo sat opposite, opposite me, if you like. Um, so in the vehicle, uh, was, um, a guy called Bob, who was the Reby lad attached, um, Yid, who was the, um, 18 battery lad who was the conveying, um, patrol who were taking us to the border for the job. Um, he was their patrol commander. Uh, a couple of other guys, Rob, Adam, Norman, uh, all from 18 Batcher, they were providing top cover and what have you. Um, so we set off from Port, Fort George and travelled along the Bunkrana Road. I'm not sure really how how far it was because I haven't been back to the scene since. But um, there was a good mood in the, in the vehicle. We were all on top voice and having a good chat. Um, about what, what we were going to do on the job. We were fully kitted because we were doing a rolling drop off on the border. And from just having a chat and having a laugh, I heard a click. And that's the only thing I can describe it as was a click and a screaming sound in my ears. Um, hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And then we were getting thrown about like ragdolls, if you like. Uh, it was a bit like being in a washing machine. So we, uh, I remember being upside down. I remember looking at the floor and um, uh, the rivets were coming out the floor because of the explosion. Um, I remember flames coming through the through the floor, um, and it was all going in slow motion um, for some reason. I, uh, I can remember every little bit of it. Um, I remember getting hit in the chest with somebody's muzzle, uh, which eventually I think that broke a few ribs. And then all of a sudden the Land Rover landed on its roof and it went back into real time and we were skidding at a rate of knots. Um, and uh, then we came to a stop and it was just quiet, absolute quiet. <clears throat> um, I remember feeling around uh, around me because I, I looked out and I was trying to get an escape out of the out of the truck, um, and I saw the lights um, out the back of the truck. But then, because of the stuff that had gone in my eyes, the road and the windscreen and that sort of stuff, I couldn't get out. Um, I'd lost I'd lost my vision at that point. So um, uh, at that point, then I remember footsteps running towards us. 
and that was our guys who were in the front truck. Um, and then they, somebody shouted secondary device and they ran back away from the truck. Obviously they didn't want to run into a, another device. Um, and I remember lying on the floor thinking, what's that noise? And I could hear this coming from, uh, where my feet were. And, uh, it was the petrol tanks and Land Rover. They did ruptured. And I could feel the cold coming up my legs and I just thought, Oh my God, I'm going to, I'm going to burn alive here, you know, um, I need to get out. So I shouted around for guys because I could hear a lot of groaning and crying in the, in the truck. Um, I didn't get any answer from Stephen Amo at the time. So <clears throat> I remember trying to find my knife on my belt, cause I had a knife on my belt and thinking if I can cut my straps off, I can get out. Um, so I cut my straps and I remember a call from the back of the truck. It was one of the 18 battery lads. And, um, he said to me, throw your arms out. I said, I can't get out. I've got my, I've got my pack on. I just can't get out. So he, he helped me cut my straps and, uh, pulled me out. And, um, and then I, I, I became unconscious then. Um, I think from that point of the contact, um, the, because you, because you lose your vision, everything becomes heightened. You know, you, uh, you you remember so many smells um, and the noises. They they just stay with you for, I suppose, a lifetime, really. But you just learn how to deal with that. So, um, and then we got took from from there. Um, I could hear people at the scene when the ambulance turned up. I could hear people working on people and that sort of stuff. And then they took us to Altnagelvin Hospital. Um. And, uh, yeah, they, uh, sort of got us in a room, I suppose, cause I could hear eight blokes being worked on. Um, but that's all, that's all I could hear really. Um, and were you still not being able to see at this point, JD? Were you still oh, yeah. I could, I could see for four days afterwards. Um, I had an operation on my left eye, a piece of the windscreen had gone through the top of my eyelid and embedded in the back of my eye. So I had to have an operation on my on my eye. Luckily, I managed to keep my eye. So, um, but at the scene, I just remember Gimbo Gibbo whacking me <laughs> around the face, <laughs> having a right dig at me. Um, but uh, obviously, he was trying to keep me awake for when we get to the um, get to the hospital. And he got an MID for this, didn't he? Yeah, well, he did, the, yeah. For, yeah. And, how he... yeah, rightly so as well. You know, he um, he conducted himself fantastically there. Um, because, you know, for someone who had no, well, the main sense taken away, which was the eyes, to, to listen to him just, you know, commanding the guys, look, let's get this done, let's get that done, it made me feel as I was reassured that, you know, we were mm-hmm. going to be all right, sort of thing. I think that's a, an, a really good point, and I've seen that in other tours where I've heard that when we were in Iraq in, in 91, there's a, an officer from a unit we were supporting lost his lost it on the net basically and that's infectious that fear mm. is infectious yeah. even yeah. though he was miles away and I can I totally understand what you're talking about there if you if you're blinded like that and you can hear somebody in authority and control you, it must have kept you confident yeah yeah um so then yeah we were taken to the hospital uh, so when we arrived at the hospital and um, the protestant shift um were they were on shift and they were coming towards the end of the shift. And I think they agreed to work an extra three or four hours to try and look after us at the end of that time. Then obviously 
uh, we were moved to a ward and the Catholic shift took over. And obviously they weren't best pleased to be looking after British soldiers in a civilian prison, if you like, a uh, prison <laughs> hospital. It fell off the prison. Um, uh, you know, I, I remember like, uh, I was a smoker at the time and asked a nurse if I could go for a cigarette because I was a bit shook up. Um, and uh, she told me to stand up knowing very well I couldn't feel my legs. And she stood me up at the side of the bed and walked away. And obviously I fell over and cut my head open. Um, just things like that. Um, the colonel came then as I was lying on the floor, um, gave the, the nurse a bit of a volley, um, got me a wheelchair and took me outside for a cigarette. And that's where he introduced me to whiskey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, got, he got this little bottle of whiskey out of his pocket, I think. And he said, here, have a drink of that. That'll help you. Um, he gave me a cigarette and he, you know, reassured me that I was going to be okay. Um, he was a real inspiration, I think, to the to the guys, Colonel Furman. He, was, um, he, he always was, though, wasn't yeah. he? He was a, yeah. one of those very inspirational uh, yeah. commanding officers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, you know, later on, um, I think we were only there, well, I'm not sure how long we were there, actually, because I was probably spaced out on drugs, but later on, I asked, uh, the nurse came to take my um, uh, temperature and um, she rammed the thermometer through the back of my throat, through the roof of my mouth and caused me to start bleeding from the back of my mouth um, without any word at all, you know, without any care. And you're still blind at this point? I'm still blind. I can't can't feel my legs. Uh, My ears are ringing. Um, Shocking. Yeah, absolutely shocking. Um, And then... Uh, during the night, uh, we hear a commotion, and um, one of the military police who was there said that um, they'd actually come back to have another dig at us because um, they said the bomb was meant for eight of us, not for not for just two. Um, and then we were on a helicopter within a short short time uh, on the way to uh, Musgrave Hospital at um, Belfast, which is a military hospital. So we we felt pretty safe there and uh, well looked after. Um, how did you find out what what point did you find out that Steve and Emil hadn't made it um, I found out while I was at uh, Alton McGelvin Hospital so I remember Tomo and Jimmy coming to um, come to tell me and I think Jimmy brought a bottle of whiskey with that one as well it's a common uh, thread here mate for you that's where my love of whiskey stems from I think <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah they they came and just said you know uh, do you know why we're here? And I said, I, I, I sort of knew because I hadn't heard their voices and uh, I had been listening for them because, you know, obviously being involved with a 400 pound landmine when you're six meters away from it or six feet away from it, some, somebody is going to come off worse, I think. And um, so through your head, you're thinking, I haven't heard the voices. And then Jimmy and Tom, I'll turn up and, yeah, just put two to two and two together, and they really didn't have to say much, if I'm honest. But, mm. uh, yeah, yeah, very sad day. Well, Colonel, I did my last two years in three two regiment, and Barry Fairman was the honorary colonel at that point, and uh, he still sends, or he did at the time, still sent cards to the families at Christmas. Yeah. He, he took that very personally; those <laughs> guys getting killed, and uh, you know, he paid for all our families to come over um, after the incident. And he put them up in a hotel and all sorts, had them picked up 
brought them to the ward to come and see us and all the flights and everything were paid for. Yeah. Um, so yeah, commendable. Amazing but, guy. Yeah. So I was on R and R when this happened. So during this six month tour, you got five days R and R, which is like, like normal with the army that includes the travel time. So I think it was on the second day of R and R and I was having a lie in and my mum came in and she said, Oh, there's been a two soldiers killed in Northern Ireland. No mobile phones back then, nothing. I said, all right, um, could you let me know if you find out? You know, my sister was working the shop at the time and I was meeting her for for, a, for lunch. Turned up there, she still hadn't found out and we're in the pub later and um, Stevie's and Amo's faces just came up on the screen and it was like an absolute body blow. Mm. And what just, I got really angry and pissed off because nobody, nobody in the pub blinked an eye. And I thought, that's my mates up there, and nobody blinked an eye. It's just another two soldiers killed in Northern Ireland, mm. like like it was for guys so in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, so it's just another two soldiers killed. You know, it's like a, it's like a real body blow. Yeah. Well, the, the nation becomes desensitised quickly as well. Yeah. <clears throat> They're very desensitised, this sort of news. They see it, they, they listen to it, and then they move on. Um, it has no personal impact to them. So, uh, JD, after the event, how did you and everyone else feel? What sort of debriefings did you receive? And was there any kind of support offered to you by counselling? No, we'd, we didn't have any counselling while we was in um, Northern Ireland. The uh, the nurses were probably our form of counselling. Um, there was a few of them that were quite good looking, so that sort of... <laughs> <laughs> made it a bit easier as they were putting cream in your eyes in the morning, you know. Um but uh, there was no counselling in Northern Ireland. It was just, let's just try and get better because we had operations. And um, I remember being dropped at uh, the Vic- uh, Queen Victoria Ho- uh, Hospital in Belfast. And a covert driver dropped me off in plain clothes to have an operation on my eye. And he left me in the waiting room with a brown in my pocket. And um, you can understand the state I was in. I, Pepper, pepper pot holes all over my face, black eyes. I couldn't see in one eye, <laughs> broken ribs. And I was sat in the waiting on room. On your toy, and all you had was this nine milli. Yeah, that, that's all I had. And then I walked into the room and the lady said, can you take your coat off? And I said, well, no, not really. It's got a firearm in it. And um, she said, well, you brought a firearm to the hospital. I said, <laughs> well, I'm not coming here without one. And she couldn't understand it. Uh, so I put the browning on the side next to me when they were doing the operation on my eye, they put your head in a clamp and sort of mess around with your eye. I don't know what they did, but, um, and then I had to tell them to call this number and the COVID driver came and picked me up again, but they just left me there just to, you know, really, if you was, if you was suffering really badly and they leave you with the browning, then yeah, it could be, um, but PTSD just wasn't, really understood no. or even known back then, mate, no. to be honest. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, so um, I think w- w- once I'd had the operations, they put they put me back on the streets and the, the noises just seemed amplified. You know, if you went past uh, a building shoot in the city or whatever and they dropped a load of rubble <laughs> down there, you think they're getting blown up again. Um, so you're constantly on edge and I suppose looking back, you... you it probably did cause a bit of damage, if I'm if I'm honest. Kev, do you want to yeah, talk yeah, about what me. happened after that? Originally, I mean, JD, you originally your tour was supposed to be four and a half months long, and you've already said, uh, you know, 
you've been sent back, you've had some sick leave, you've come back and deployed, um, but your tour was extended. Tell me about yeah, the, why, why, why was it extended and where did you go? They sent us off to South Almar to um, help repair some watchtowers, I think they were, um, mm. and we were sort of the, the, the guys that were going in just to support the engineers, if you like, that were fixing them. So we were at Bestbrook Mill and um, I didn't really venture away too much from there, apart from foot patrols around Best, Bestbrook Mill. But um, Well, you kept in sort of the option side of it, JD? No, I, um, as far as I recall, I was out with um, a different patrol then, you know, which was unusual because obviously my patrol were non-existent then. Um, so I got put out with sort of a makeshift patrol and uh, we did sort of local area I suppose security really. Um, I didn't. I never went down to Cross McGlen or places like that. So, uh, was but, this, do you think this was deliberate or just yeah, by yeah, probably. I, th- I think it was probably was deliberate um, because I, I, I was struggling. Um, I'd sort of voiced my concerns. I was struggling to um, Captain Sparks and what have you, and just said, you know, I'm I'm not feeling too comfortable really. Um, so yeah, he probably did that to look out for us. Yeah, it was interesting that that tour there because we went down there specifically for that refurbishment of these golf towers, which were massive towers on high ground all along the border and and at strategic points throughout South Armagh. And we spent about a couple of weeks in trenches down there, and it was the longest time the British Army had deployed and dug in trenches thing yeah. since Korea. So <laughs> our Mexi digging skills came in pretty handy at that point. We had some real luxury trenches at that there. Yeah. So after tour ended, JD, and we returned back to Dortmund. How was your mental health and how were you coping? Uh, probably not too good. Um, I uh, I couldn't sleep. I was uh, so when before the before the contact, I was probably well, you probably agree you knew me quite well back then, Fergie. I was probably um, you know I didn't have a care in the world. Um, I was quite confident in what I did. Um, I I was enjoying life when I came back from. Northern Ireland. I was a completely different bloke. I'd lost all my confidence. Um, everything I seemed to do went wrong, um, which then built pressure on you and you couldn't sleep at night. And I was having terrible nightmares. Um, you know, the constant back, um, flashbacks of it. And, um, I used to have hallucinations cause I hadn't slept for so long. Uh, I'd see a guy at the side, back at the side of my bed, I'd wake up and he'd be there. Um, I don't know who he was to this day, but <laughs> I don't know how he got a key. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, so it was that type of thing, you know, that I just sort of I voiced my concerns to uh, Tomo and said, you know, I'm really not, I'm not, I'm not working well at the minute. I need, I need some help. Um, and I was referred to um, quite a senior officer because he was the main psych at um, Munster Hospital. Uh, and, and the funny thing is I used to tell people that I was going for some treatment on my ankle because I didn't want people to know that I was suffering mentally. Um, mm. So I used to make, I used to make this crock of shit story up, say <laughs> I'm off to Munster to have my ankle seen to, but I wasn't, I was trying to see the psych. Was that because you were um, embarrassed about yeah, having? Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah. Um, because like I said, before the, before the explosion, you know, I, I, I was just full of confidence. I was, I was doing really, really well and um, enjoying life in the army, but um, then it all turned around. 
Um, so I got to the point where I went to the see the psych, and um, I remember him. Uh, he said, "Hold your hands out," and he held my hands, and my hands were wet through. I was shaking constantly, uh, and he said, "What's the matter with you?" I said, "I'm just struggling." I said, "I can't sleep." I told him about the figure that I, that I was seeing at the side of my bed. And uh, he told me to get a grip. It's what we do. <laughs> Amazing. So, Absolutely shocking. So he gave me some sleeping tablets and he said to me, if you're not in bed by the time these tablets take over, it's about 20 minutes, you're going to fall asleep on the floor and you're going to wake up very cold. Um, so I said, oh, okay, so let's get in bed then. And he said, yeah, they're really strong. And there's a note, give it to your Sergeant Major, um, because you won't wake up in the morning. There's no way you'll be up at six o'clock in the morning. You will be out until nine o'clock. And at first I thought, you know, oh, fantastic. I'll be able to get some sleep. But then the knock-on effect from that was that I was then sort of taken away from the guys, the very guys that I looked to for support. Mm. Uh, and I became an outsider in the troop. You know, I don't think we supported you very well either, mate, because I, I tell me from right here, I think, there's another guy in the troop at the same time going through very a very similar process. Didn't we put you both? Didn't you both go in the same room at the farthest end of the corridor or something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I'm 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 really ashamed to say that now. Yeah. But I remember just thinking, because I don't know why we didn't click. We just were young and stupid. But you know that was our solution was put the two of them in one room down the farthest end of the corridor. Maybe we can get some sleep as well. I mean, but uh, I am glowing with shame now when I'm when I'm from yeah. doing that. But but like we said, you know, people didn't know back then. You know, they, they didn't know. didn't understand but, it. No, and even even um, the guy that you're talking about, um, we won't mention his name, but uh, he he couldn't even stay in a room with me. Uh, so he went <laughs> across the corridor into the one man room. So I was in this four man room on my own with this bed in the corner. I, I was just like, I, I I really don't know where to go from here, you know, and. Um, I remember passing my bombardier leadership course with the uh, three nine regiment. I did really well on that, and I, I, I came back from that thinking, "Oh, I'm going to be all right." But the the nightmares just carried on, and um, it got to the point where I just uh, I went seeing, and I said, "I've got to leave because it's not doing me any good." Um, and that's when I chose to leave the army. Um, yeah, but be- but before you left the army, you went on off Granby in '91. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So, did, yeah. so bear in mind all the problems you were having with PTSD, sleep, and you know, and, and th- there was no real support. How did you cope with that tour? Uh, yeah. Well, it, it, I think it's it's a funny thing, confidence, isn't it? When when your confidence goes, you start to make mistakes, and then when you start to make mistakes, you become embarrassed, um, and the pressure of you know. I did something stupid. I, I, I left my rifle on the on the tracks of the four three two. I always remember this. It was, I was so embarrassed, and I remember running round to try and pack up because we were having to move out. And I left my bloody rifle on the on the tracks, and the the truck started. And I remember saying, "Oh shit, I left my rifle." And um, uh, the boss who we were with at the time, he sort of gave me a bit of a scowling look, and I got out, picked it up, got back in the truck. But it's, it's little things, well, not little things, but it's things like that that mm. then create 
there for you, you know, your, your basket to become full and yeah. more you, self-induced pressures. Exactly. Keep piling yeah, exactly. On. So you've got this other issue and then you've got all these pressures piling up in this basket. And once the basket becomes full, you're just useless. You, you, you can't, you know, you can't, you can't operate. Um, so yeah, that, that was tough. Yes. So when you left the army then, did you have any support after that? No, um, no, it, it got worse. Um, I was working, uh, for a company. So I was working shifts and for instance, I'd work two days shift, two night shifts, and then four days off. Um, but on my night shift, I'd come home at seven in the morning after a, f- a 14 hour night shift and I'd look at the house and I think, cool, there's a bit of dust there or something, or there's a bit of fluff on the carpet. I had to vacuum the whole house um, or I'd look at the windows. The windows are dirty. So I'd be up a ladder at 10 o'clock in the morning, cleaning all the windows on the house just because I, I needed something else to um, set my mind away from, from what I was actually thinking. You know, um, I, I drank too much. Some might say I drank too much in the army, but um, <laughs> I think that was probably a fair assessment, mate. <laughs> um, um, I, um, I I got to the point where I was exhausted. I remember being on the driveway with my little boy, uh, and I had him in my arms, and um, I collapsed. And I collapsed while talking to a neighbour, um, and I had the my little boy in my arms, and I I remember sort of coming to with the ambulance there, and I was still holding on to him. Um, and uh, the ambulance said, you know, we think you've got meningitis or something or something like that it was. So they took me to the hospital for a lumbar puncture and then they came in and said, no, you've not got meningitis, you're suffering from exhaustion. Um, and my body had just given up. Um, mm. But it was... Hey, a- did you drop any hint at this point that you had PTSD or you're suffering? Yeah, um, I, I did tell them, you know, um, I, I didn't really call it PTSD then because I, I don't think anybody did, but... I just said, you know, I'm I'm really struggling with an incident that I went through a couple of years ago. That's what it was by then, a couple of years. And um, mm. uh, and I, I sort of said, you know, I, I, re- I really need some help because if I don't get help, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, so they got me in touch with this uh, guy who was an ex-medic from uh, the medical corps, and he'd left the army and retrained as a as a counsellor for veterans. Um, and I think I had about eight sessions with him, and he was fantastic um just to be able to talk to somebody who understood um what you were going through and you know obviously if you look back at the i think it was a brigadier the guy that the psych (laughs) (laughs) just to look back at what he said and then what this guy was saying you know um was phenomenal really and it, it helped me in so many ways i mean I think if you struggle with PTSD, you're always going to struggle with PTSD through throughout your life. You you, you can't kid yourself. You're never going to get rid of it. But what you have to sort of understand, I suppose, is that, you know, uh, you, everybody has a different trigger. Um, my trigger could be the smell of petrol um, or something like that, you know. Um, and once you understand that and you understand that, your way out of that or how you deal with that, then mine, mine is to go and talk to people and just have a chat with my mates and say, you know, I'm feeling a bit down at the minute or whatever. And, um, yeah. So I suppose my message would be to anybody who's got PTSD is to, to talk. Cause if you don't talk, it becomes a pretty lonely place. 
Um, I think it's probably a bit easier to do that because I think there's the stigmas being removed from it these yeah. days, I think. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. mental health generally, especially male mental health. Yeah. Um, I think sea change can it's probably still not brilliant, but sea change. Mm. Have yeah. you been, been in mind your experiences, JD, and, and what the road you have traveled? Has it enabled you to help others with similar problems? Yeah, uh, you know, in my job at the minute, um, I come into contact with um, quite a lot of, um, well, drug addicts and that sort of stuff. And generally, you know, some of them are ex-veterans from the Australian um, Defence Force who served in Afghanistan and places like that. And um, so obviously I can relate to them um, and what's, you know, what's... what they're saying to me, you know, I, I had one guy and he said, Oh, I saw my mates die. I saw my mates die in front of me and, and what have you. Um, and I said to him, look, I didn't see my mates die, but I heard my mates die. So I know exactly where you're coming from, mm-hmm. you know, um, let me get you some help. Um, so I, I've used my experience even out of work. I've met these people and met a counselor that I've arranged to, to meet with so I, I can get them the help. You know, um, sometimes it doesn't work, you know, they along the path that they're taking and, and, and mm-hmm. until they accept the help, then really um, there's no help. But every time I see them, they go, oh, Oggy, how are you doing? You know, and I sort of sit down with them, have a chat with them um, and try and Which get probably them. helps them. Yeah, yeah, it probably helps them, you know, and they, they know I'm from a forces background and mm. uh, I say it as it is. I don't, I don't, you know, pull any punches. I, I talk to them as a proper person um, instead of trying to beat around the bush. So, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Mate, that, that, that was amazingly powerful, JD, and I think just opening up like that, A, must have taken a hell of a lot to do it, a lot of courage, but also hopefully MD's listening, you know, yeah. follows your advice and, and gets that help they need. I just Before we move on to the last part of the podcast, I, I just want to ask you both a question. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was in, about 10 years ago, I was out in the army and I went to Belfast on a business trip. And very much like you were saying there, JD, we got off. I was with two civilian colleagues and I was nervous. We got off at Belfast Airport. I think it's now George Best Airport. Yeah, yeah. I went out there. And do you remember you used to have the little fake travel agency that was the army place? <laughs> yeah, that you knew yeah. it was the army. MacGuffin yeah. Traveller, whatever it was. <laughs> Straight off, mate, I got through the, 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 the gates and I was nervous. I felt mm. naked. Yeah. Uh, going back to the sounds, the accents, it, 20 years, it was like a trigger. Yeah. Uh, we went to the hotel going out on the streets and I was just like looking around all the time, you know, was, oh, that hyper alertness, you just couldn't yeah. relax. And I know for me, the peace process was flawed. I felt they sold the army out and a lot of guys, you know, died for nothing. But I was walking around Belfast and the Belfast I was walking around was way better than the Belfast of 20 years ago. Yeah. And even though the peace process was flawed, it made me feel a bit better. I think Northern Ireland has got a lot of problems still, but where we are today is way better than it was. So you've just asked you, JD, what's your thoughts? Um, yeah, well, I've got family in uh, Coleraine in Northern Ireland. So, um, I, like you, I, I sort of felt betrayed, I think with the, uh, the peace process, uh, where they allowed the, the terrorists to, to leave, if you like. However, I then, I then look at 
the life that my family lead now in Ireland and how it has become a bit easier for them. Um, so, you know, Stephen Amos and the multiple other guys um, from the regiment who've, who got killed over there. Um, I don't think it was in, you know, a, a waste, if you know what I mean. Um, so I think we can set that away that we had a part in smoothing the way for a, a better peaceful Northern Ireland, I think. And um, yeah, hopefully it stays. Would you, what's your thoughts on that, Kev? Well, I'll be back in my last job. I had to go back to Belfast a few times and my last tour was in Belfast in the early nineties. And the Belfast of today is massively different. You know, I won't call it normal. It's more normal than it was. And I think for the quality of life for everyone, both of the communities now is a thousand times better than it was. So I think our role, we stabilized it. It took a long time to do that. We brought the we helped set the conditions to allow a, a, a level of um, talk to happen to help because I think for the generation today, you know, from those that were born in the early nineties, they've never seen it. They've never seen the seventies and eighties. Yeah. The Belfast of today is unrecognisable to the one that you watch on the old footage and the tours that we had. And I think for the generally for the whole populace, it's a better place, and it, it, it's it's a more stable place. It'll always have problems. I think that's that's the nature of Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, and and sometimes you know these these legacies go on for hundreds of years. But it is a you know I I hardly recognised it in the same way. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay, um, well, so look at. Over to no, you, Kev. Sorry, no, it's I'm not me. It's, 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 it's your show it's now, yeah. yeah it's, my, it's my I'm stealing your now. thunder. <laughs> so, as usual, we always finish off with Desert Island Dits, in which the guest picks, you know, his favourite military book, a film, a luxury item. Um, so, JD, tell me your choices. Well, I've got two books. Um, the first book, obviously, from the military. Um, uh, so, that was Tornado Down by... Uh, John Nickel, who was the pilot that was found in Iraq. Absolutely fantastic book. One that you can't put down once you start reading it. Um, talks about his capture and his interrogation, um, which is obviously something that we were trained to do. Um, so, yeah. Oh, Kev, he's, 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 he's forgotten the podcast basics. Which he's, not read, he's not read the reels, does he? Oh, man. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, that tornado down. Um, and the second one is a, a police book, um, obviously because of my present role. Um, and um, it's called Dirty Work, which... Um, goes back to the 80s and 90s uh, with the New South Wales Police Force and the corruption uh, between the police, the um, judges uh, in the courts and the, the paedophile rings that sort of controlled the drug use. Uh, so they were um, they were making the drugs. The police were turning a blind eye because the drugs were going to the judges and the judges were then... Um, taking advantage of the children that they were peddling. It's an absolutely awesome book. And um, the guy that wrote it was a whistleblower. He was a member of the New South Wales Police. <clears throat> and at the end of the book, he said, one day they'll get me. I'm in hiding in Australia. Uh, he said, there will 
fabricate something to get get me. And then about two years ago, the fellow was, uh, I was watching the news and they said they'd arrested an ex-detective from New South Wales Police and they'd fitted him up with murder wow. <laughs> in Queensland and they'd gone across and just snatched him from his farm uh, and now he's in prison. Uh, and he, wow. he, always, he always said they're going to come and get me. Um, so if you get the chance to read that book, it's fantastic. It's called Dirty Work. And that, uh, sorry, 1980s you're saying that was set? Yeah, eighties and eighties yeah. and nineties. So you know, you CI they call it CIB over over here, but CIB, um, how they were all run by this ring. You know, it, it was so corrupt; it's untrue. So, I'll have a look out for that one, yeah. mate. Yeah, you three item. Oh, no film. They're not doing a film. You used to pick. Oh, yeah, I'll have a, I'll have a film. Um, well, we we all used to do. Uh, we used to like odd angry shot. I suppose uh, yeah. that, that was a cracking cracking movie of the Aussies in Vietnam. That was pretty cool. Uh, the patrol technique's quite good. <laughs> yeah, we, Pete picked out a couple of podcasts. Yeah, yeah. I remember we all used to watch it in Pete's room, didn't we? Yeah. Um, and Pete used to come out with the one-liners from the. <laughs> the <audience. laughs> Laddie Drongo. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I go for that. Um, my luxury item uh, would have to be uh, a Bowser to put my milk in. So <laughs> anybody any, anybody who knows, uh, knows me and served with me would know the Bowser story. Uh, You're not getting away with that lately, mate. And, go on, and tell jo- Jordy Watson. Away. So Jordy Watson told me to put some milk in the, in the Bowser. And I thought I was putting milk into a like a big Bowser of tea. But I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and I ended up, ended up wasting about 20 litres of milk. You poured, mate, 200, 20 litres of milk and into a 200 litre water Bowser. That's what you did. <laughs> I, thought was, I thought it was, I, I don't know what I thought at the time. <laughs> no, n- n- nobody else does either, mate. I do, I do remember, I do remember Geordie Watson trying to chase me through the, through the woods and, um, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, classic. So, my my recommendation for this week is Lofty Wiseman's The SES Survival Handbook. Probably everybody in the troop yeah. back in the eighties had this on their bookshelf because we did loads of survival training. We talked about resistance interrogation, but we never talked about the survival bit. And uh, we did a survival week on part of our selection. When you went to the LERP school to do the resistance interrogation training, you did, you know, survival. We spent five days in the survival area making rabbit skin hats and, you know, trying to catch rabbits. And again, when you went to do the uh, Army Combat Survival Instructor course at Hereford, that had that that as well. I don't know, thinking back on it now, you're E&E through... uh, Germany, which have been reduced to wasteland with probably some tactical nuclear missiles. I don't know what we're expected to catch and eat. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, but I think a lot of it just... Go on, mate. I remember me and Taft uh, bedded down in a in a German's barn one night. That was probably the best food and <laughs> transportation. When you were on, on escape and evasion? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Taft, Taft don't get Taft caught. Be German. <laughs> 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 if you ever get him, I think I'll lo- still tell you about that story. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of those things, though, it's the, it's the method is in the madness, and that it's not so much that you could catch a rabbit, but it developed your self confidence to yep. be in your own with nothing and, yep. and, and have the confidence to get by. And that, that was the whole point of it, wasn't yeah. it? Okay. Yeah. So, what's your recommendation this week, Kev? My recommendation is uh, before I start the recommendation, obviously, if anyone can name the fiend tune that they just heard, 
to 1960s series. It's a classic uh, classic TV series. If you can name it, there might be a prize for Christmas, but we never know. Do you know what, mate? That's one of the best ways of covering covering up unprofessionalism. I've heard that well. (laughs) Anyway, going back to my book. I'm recommending The Interrogator. I think I talked about it before a little bit when we, we, we talked to Pete. It's a story of Hans Schraff. Hopefully I've said that right, S-C-H-A-R-F-F. And his role as an interrogator, a Luftwaffe interrogator during the Second World War and the tactics he used against the U.S. Air Force. Um, and throughout the whole thing, he never used any physical methods of torture or anything or any of that sort of stuff on the conditioning. He was very smart, and after the Second World War, he was delivering lectures to the U.S. military at the Pentagon, and they adopted his techniques, and he also developed a massively big relationship with some of the pilots that were captured and he had interrogated. Um, so after the war, he became a, fr- a friend to them all because he was seen as a fair man. He was, he was very clever in his, the way he did it. I won't spoil it, but the book, is, it's a really good read. Great, thanks, Kev. Okay, JD, I'll come to the end now. So I'd just like to say thanks from me and Kev. Very powerful, moving uh, description there of what you went through. And hopefully it'll inspire MDLs that if they are suffering the way you suffered, to go and get help. I'd also like to thank uh, the listeners for the continued support and suggestions. And our email address is at the bottom of the show notes if you want to get in touch. And as usual, you can find us on all the usual social media suspects, Instagram and Facebook, YouTube. Uh, Download us from iTunes. Please give us a review. That's the best way to expand the show to a bigger audience. On our next pod, our guest is Simon Vincent, and we're going to have a little bit of a change because it's Christmas. We're going to come up with our top five favourite books. So that'll either turn people off or all the uh, librarians amongst you will be tuning in with interest. I think so, that'll be quite, again to- quite funny listening to Vinny talking about five five of his favourite books. I think it'll be quite hilarious. Yeah, you'll have some. <laughs> I reckon we'll have some eclectic choice there, to say the least. <laughs> so, thanks again to Nick Beale for sponsoring the series and offering technical support through his company ISAR. We'll see you next time on the Unconventional Soldier. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.